The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So we've been studying through the book of Acts over the course of the last year in some change. We are finishing Acts two Sundays from now. So we're in Acts chapter 26. There's 28 chapters in Acts. After today, we have two more Sundays. And maybe you're asking yourself, what are we going to study once we conclude the book of Acts? Well, for the next 12 weeks, beginning in October, October, November, and December, we're going to devote ourselves to a teaching series that we're calling The True Story of the Whole World. What we're going to do is just consider over 12 weeks all that the Bible has to tell us about the shape of redemptive history, the big overarching story of the Bible in 12 weeks. Now, it's our hunch that for many of us, we've grown up sort of in a church or around church or church adjacent, and so we have these puzzle pieces. We know about Noah, and we've got Abraham, and and David is tucked in there somewhere, and there's the Saul in the Old Testament and the Saul in the New Testament that I can't keep straight. They're all kind of tucked in there somewhere. So we want to take those puzzle pieces and attempt to construct a whole to put together the true story of the whole world, the overarching meta-narrative, we might say. That's kind of the pretentious way to say it, the meta-narrative of the Bible. Now, I've got to say, this week, Paul, he kind of steals my thunder a little bit with what we were hoping to do with this teaching series, this 12-week study and the true story of the whole world. It's like, you know, I, I understand that it's Paul the Apostle that we're talking about. I understand that Paul is a brilliant freak of nature with a, a one-of-a-kind mind, and, a, and God sovereignly ordained this man who is trained as a Pharisee, who also had Roman citizenship, who could speak multiple languages, has the kind of key missionary and pioneer of the early church. I get that he demonstrates deep familiarity with the scriptures. He has profound and persuasive rhetorical skills. I get that he has obvious insights into the nature of redemptive history given by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus himself. But I was kind of hoping to hit you with this zinger in coming weeks that Paul sort of does for us this morning. Paul just frankly beats me to the point of this story that we're going to be considering over the next 12 weeks. This morning, Paul gives a speech before Herod Agrippa. He offers his defense, his story, and more than that, he argues, well, his work is just picking up on what God has always promised he would do. What God has always intended to do, what we might say has been God's mission from the very beginning. That's what Paul argues for us today, what God's mission is from the very beginning. And then we'll see downstream from God's mission is Paul's mission. Now, by way of setting the stage, I just want to remind us that back in chapter 21, Paul comes to Jerusalem after years of missionary journeys all over Europe and Asia. And he arrives in the city of Jerusalem. He's accumulated this big offering to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. But he's arrested on bogus charges in chapter 21. He's accused of defiling the temple. And like we've said, being willy-nilly with the law of Moses. But we're told a few weeks ago that Jesus has plans for Paul. Jesus intends to use Paul's imprisonment actually for the advance of the gospel. But God has a mission even for Paul's imprisonment. In chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus tells Paul in a vision, hey, just like you've testified me, uh, uh, about me in Jerusalem, my aim is for you to continue to testify about me in Rome, all throughout the Roman Empire. And the way that he goes about doing this is by being arrested and by being put in prison and by being uh, given the opportunity to preach the gospel and hearing after hearing after hearing. That's what we've seen in the last few chapters. We've said this a few times, that the book of Acts kind of goes from Indiana Jones 
globetrotting and daring do to a season of law and order, a bunch of court appearances. Don't worry, in chapter 27, 28, we kind of get a little Indiana Jones again. We got some Indiana Jones returning. But what we've seen, again, is that, that Paul in these hearings has been bearing witness. It's, it's, it's been an occasion for Paul to bear witness about what God has done in Jesus. We've, we've observed many foiled attempts at putting Paul to death. We've seen Paul shipped off for his own safety to Caesarea, and it was the, the very means by which God intended for the gospel to move forward. Paul's being held in prison over the last two years and some change by a guy named Felix. Felix is succeeded by Festus. Festus, last week, holds a hearing. He can't make heads or tails of the things that Paul is saying or the controversy that Paul has stirred up. So he appeals to be, Paul appeals to be heard by Caesar. Festus agrees to that, and he goes to King Herod Agrippa to go get Herod's input. Herod decides he wants to hear the whole story about what Paul has been up to, and this is where we find ourselves in chapter 26. The story picks up on the scene in 25, where Paul is summoned to speak before a large crowd of really important people. Chapter 25, 23 tells us that King Agrippa and Bernice, this is Herod Agrippa, the great-grandson of the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus, and he's uh, related to the Herod in chapter 12, who's eaten by worms. Just a rule of thumb, when you read the Bible and you read Herod, it can be kind of tricky to get which one's which, but just know that it's typically not good guys right? So Herod Agrippa is here. Verse 25, 23 tells us that he enters with great pomp with Bernice. It's like the dun, da da dun, da da dun, 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 I make way. That's for Prince. That's what came to mind for me, King Agrippa and Bernice. It's from Aladdin in 1992. Some of you were born in the early 2000s and it disturbs me. Um, Let me just share this. We had the college luncheon and when the college students were born the year you graduated from high school, that does things to you. You know what I mean? Anyway. All right, where were we? So Festus is there. He's, he's the governor who's overseeing Paul's imprisonment. He's with King Herod and Bernice. Uh, we're also told that there's a number of military tribunes who are present. There's a number of great men of the city who are present. There's Jewish leaders who are present. And you know how it is. People just like drama. They hear about controversy or hullabaloo and they want to hear the juicy details and so they just kind of go towards the drama. People want to hear what this controversy is about. And so this is not a room full of, just a handful of people. He's not confined to kind of a, a small living room where he's kind of relaying the, the, the details about his conversion to Herod and Bernice. This is an audience. Paul is speaking to a great number of people with wealth, power, and importance. One commentator pointed out that Paul is appearing before the Herodian, the Roman, and the Jewish authorities, which, by the way, sounds a lot like somebody else in the Bible. And here we find Paul standing before this crowd. Paul, tell us your story. And you just got to think. Paul is a bright dude. He knows what's going on. He knows what Jesus intends for him to do here. And a softball is gently lobbed in Paul's direction. Paul, we want to hear. Give us, don't spare any detail. Tell us all about the things that, that you're preaching about and about your life that's led you to this point. So Paul stands, probably cracks his knuckles, clears his throat, and masterfully delivers an incredibly persuasive defense. Let's look at verse 2. Sort of preamble to his speech. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, 
I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul says to Agrippa, I'm glad it's you that I'm speaking to, Agrippa. Not because, because again, Agrippa is not a great guy, but because Agrippa has some familiarity with these controversies. He's probably heard the stories about Jesus. He's probably heard the claims that Christians have made about the resurrected Jesus. He's probably heard about the Apostle Paul. And this is why he's so interested in having Paul kind of sit down and give him the juicy details, right? He says, Paul says, I want you to listen to me patiently because I'm going I'm to lay it out for you and hopefully you're familiar with the things that I'm talking about. Then Paul begins to list his, his bona fides, as it were, verses 4 and 5. He acknowledges that all those in Israel should know the truth about me. They know that I'm Jewish. They know I was raised a Pharisee. They know that I was among the elite of Jewish society and education. This is Paul speaking about himself. To be a Pharisee was a big deal. He was one of the elites in Jewish society. Verses 6 and 7, he says, The reason I stand on trial, my message of the resurrection, is actually totally consistent with what Jews have always believed. With what these guys, speaking of the Jewish authorities, with what these guys say they believe. The resurrection was the promise that was given to our fathers. It's what these men hope to attain. The, The nation of Israel hopes to be resurrected at the end of days. So when I talk about the resurrection of Jesus, I'm not talking about anything that's inconsistent with what they say they believe. So if anybody is being inconsistent with the Jewish faith, it's not me, it's these guys. In fact, by my preaching of the resurrection in Jesus, I'm showing that these guys actually aren't sufficiently Jewish. They hope in the resurrection one day, and and they're saying that this can't be that Jesus raised from the dead. If you say you believe what you say you believe, Why can't this be the case? And so this is brilliant on Paul's part. He's showing that the question of Jesus' resurrection isn't something foreign to the teaching of the Jews. It's utterly consistent with what we'll see in a moment, with what the scriptures actually have always taught. I'm being consistent. If anybody's deviating from the faith, it's not me. It's you guys. Then Paul shifts to some autobiographical details about his former life. Verse 9. He says that he was himself once opposed to Jesus. And I just love the way that this is described here, the way Paul sort of speaks of the intensity with which he persecuted. Look at verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. We're told in chapter 7 that the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is actually martyred in Paul's presence. Paul is there to see Stephen stoned and put to death. Paul talks about how he, is, he, he, was, he participated in seeing these saints in prison, and he actually voted for them to be put to death. Verse 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, tried to make them recant, recant the faith, And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul's saying, like, this was was who I once was. Like, I, I used to be opposed to the message of Jesus of Nazareth with an intensity that you guys can't even imagine. I was opposed to the gospel. Which, of course, just makes this whole situation so confounding for the Jews during this time. I mean, it was not unknown to his listeners that Paul was a dude. I mean, Paul was just a dude. He was bright. 
He was elite. He was an up-and-comer. People knew about Paul, and they probably had awareness about his story, which makes his hard right turn so just confounding. Paul? That Paul? He was persecuting Christians, is now like advocating for Christians, is, is now considers himself one of the Christians? I mean, imagine somebody you know is, is ardently and intensely anti-Christian, only for you to catch wind one day that they are now planting churches. They're now evangelizing. It would be amazing. I mean, you'd probably be skeptical about this. You would probably assume it was a PR stunt or an undercover thing to expose Christians from the inside. You, you might even wonder if he lost his mind. And all of these questions were the sorts of questions that people had about Paul. This can't be the case that he's gone from this to this. And yet Paul, Paul testifies to the reality and the rationality of what it is that he is doing, what he is devoting himself to now. He then moves on from verse 11 and to verse 12, a kind of summary of his conversion and call. For the third time, we get an account of Paul's conversion, which itself is probably meaningful. Like, why is it that you repeat things? Why do you repeat things a thousand times to your kids? Because it's typically stuff that they need to get, right? And so for the third time, we're given an account of Paul's conversion. The author of Acts has either got a word count that he's trying to hit, or he's got some intention here. He, he wants us to be familiar with what happened to the Apostle Paul. It's because even Luke, the author, knows how incredible this transformation is, and he wants us to understand that it came from the Lord Jesus himself, graciously interrupting and inverting and redirecting the Apostle Paul. This is a miracle, but this is not mania. Paul was actually, he says, like literally told by the resurrected Jesus, hey, go do this thing for me. So Paul talks about being on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to hunt down Christians in a foreign city when a bright light appears before him, along with those that were with me, Paul says. We all fell to the ground. And then Paul says, I, just Paul, heard a voice in Hebrew, that is the Jewish language, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting against me? It's hard to kick against the goad. So Jesus in Hebrew asks Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's worth reiterating again that Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? What does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? Paul's opposition to Christians isn't just opposition to Christians, it's opposition to Jesus. And so Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus and says, I'm now going to take what you're doing here against me and I'm going to use it for my purposes. Then we're given this kind of strange inclusion here. It's not in the other accounts of Paul's conversion, but he says that Jesus asks him or, or states to him, the language is a little bit tricky in the original language, the saying of, it's, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. Now, the saying probably comes from a Greek saying that relates to farming. If you've ever seen a cattle prod, the little zapper that gets cattle moving, I've seen them on TV. I've never seen one in real life. But it's a similar idea that the, you would goad an ox or cattle with a nail and you poke his rear end just to sort of get him going. And sometimes the ox or the, the cattle or whatever would get frustrated, an obstinate ox would kick against the goad as you're, you have some toddlers like this, I can imagine, just kick against the goad, right? Now, this is a Greek expression that means something like resisting the fates, stiff-arming what the fates or the gods have for you. And Jesus is telling Paul, don't resist what it is I have for you. Verse 15, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, the one you're resisting. Now I'm taking you and I'm making you my servant for my purposes. Which is just baller, you know? 
I, I, can't, I can't, frankly can't think of a better word to describe this move. We've talked about this a couple of times throughout Acts, is this kind of tendency that Jesus has to use these gospel judo moves. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago that I'm not a martial arts expert by any stretch of the imagination, but what I, what I know about judo is that the whole point is to capitalize on the momentum of your opponent. In fact, judo intends to use the momentum of the opponent against the opponent, right? And again and again, we see the Lord Jesus doing these gospel judo moves. What you intend for evil, exactly that, that precise, that thing that you're trying to do evil with, I'm going to grab hold of that, and then I'm going I'm to invert it, and I'm going to use it for my purposes. The call of Paul is like one of those gospel judo moves. Just like Jesus made death a servant for his purpose, he nabs this guy, Paul the rage monster, raging against the church for my purposes. And it's just this thing that God loves to do is to invert evil for good. And he does so in the life of Paul. And Paul is recognizing that that is exactly what's taking place. You probably also observe here that this is the third time that the, that the conversion narrative is relayed in Luke. And that it's actually a little bit different each time that it's relayed in the book of Luke. What's the deal with that? Why, why does Luke include this multiple times? Well, as we, we mentioned, it's important. And so Luke wants us to understand that this call on Paul's life comes from Jesus himself. But you might wonder, like, what is the deal with the, with the sort of kind of contrary details that are present in the different accounts of Paul's conversion? Could it be that Luke is inconsistent? He's inattentive to details, and it just proves how sloppily the Bible is written. Maybe that's why the conversion stories are a little bit different in the book of Acts. Or it could be that Luke is so attentive to details that he picks up on that very natural human tendency to inflect certain details or condense material as you tell the story to different people. Let me ask you this. If a child comes up to you this Sunday and says, how was your week? What did you do this week? You're going to tell it in a particular way. You might relay a funny detail uh, about probably potty humor. You know, you, you might relay a funny detail or con- condense the details of what you do for work. But if someone from your community group comes up and says, hey, how was your week? What did your week consist of? You would probably maybe tell some of the same stories, but the details and the inflections would look this way or maybe that way, right? It's a very natural human tendency to tell the story in a way that sort of has an aim with that particular audience. And so as we have these supposed conflicting accounts of Paul's conversion. It's not that Luke is sloppy and he's just not attentive to details. It's that Luke is very attentive to detail. And because Paul, he's recognizing that the story has important details kind of in this moment and important details that are relayed in this moment and important details that are relayed in this moment. And what's being emphasized in this telling of the conversion is that the specific calling that Jesus has placed on Paul's life to the Gentiles. Look at verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus tells Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles so they can go from dark to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that their sins can be forgiven and they can receive a place among my people. And so Paul says, with a whole lot of common sense, verse 19, 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's probably a good move, right? To be faithful to what Jesus has called you to do. Just makes sense as to why Paul is so unrelenting and bold with this. He's saying, guys, I literally, in the actual sense of the word literally, I literally saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. And he isn't dead. And he told me to go do the very things that I'm doing in your presence right now. You cannot expect me to be disobedient to that vision. Indeed, all I have done along the way is what I've been told to do, and that's why the Jews want me dead. But here I stand, verse 22. To this day, alive and well, helped by God. And today I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He says, I'm only saying what Jesus told me to say, and what's more, I'm only saying what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That Jesus must suffer, that he must rise, and that the nations would be gathered in. The Lord Jesus would proclaim light to the Gentiles, and Paul sees what he's doing as Jesus' actions through him. All right, so let, let, me, let me, here's the spoiler for the next 12 Sundays. Please come, anyway, even though I'm giving you this now. You want to know what the true story of the whole world is ultimately about. You want to know what the law and the prophets are directed at. You want to know what Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and Kings. You want to know what Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jonah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know what all of them are about. You know what all of them are driving towards. You know what the message that all of them since the beginning of time have been pushing forward to is? It's Jesus. It has been inevitably headed towards Jesus from day one from page one, from before page one. It has all been directed here to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus where he would send his spirit and he would gather the nations into one new man. It has always been Jesus. That has always been the goal of the story. That has always been the heart of the Bible. So again, Paul is saying, I'm not deviating from Judaism. I'm seeing how it's completed in Christ. I am truly Jewish and I'm not the one who's gone rogue on this. It's you guys. I'm just getting on board with what God's mission has always been, and it's this, Jesus. God's mission has always been Jesus. That's the thing. The whole thing has been unveiled for us. God's mission has always been Jesus. Now, interestingly, the book of Acts is preceded by another book, a book that's, the book of Acts is about the early church. The book that precedes Acts by the same author, Luke, is about the life of Jesus, They're intended to be read together, Luke and Acts. And at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, something really similar takes place. Go ahead and flip to Luke chapter 24 in your scriptures. Just one book ahead of the book of Acts. Luke 24, verse 13. This is the day that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's a great story. That very day, two of them, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. 
while they were talking and discussing together, all, all the things that had happened being Jesus' crucifixion. They, haven't, they don't yet know what all has taken place. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, and, and then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? The great joke there is, have you been living under a rock the past few days? You get it? Anyway, verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this. It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he had, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter, in, enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures what? The things concerning himself. So Paul outlines for us that the whole story has always been driving towards Jesus. And you know who else outlines that for us? Jesus. Noah and Abraham and everybody else and David and Joan and Ezekiel and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all of it has always been building to this, Jesus says, to me. The law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets testify about me. God's mission has always been Jesus. And you know what? It's not just that the goal of the Bible has always been Jesus it's that the goal of human history has always been Jesus. Listen to how Paul says this elsewhere in the book of Ephesians. I'm just going to read this. This comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Watch this. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul tells us that history has always been moving to this center, the uniting of all things in heaven and in earth in Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and church of the Lord Jesus. God's mission has always been to gather people into Jesus from all nations. It's the message of the Bible. It's the goal of human history. It's the reason that God created anything was to steer it all here. Boom. The nations, you and, you and me, us, gathered into Christ to the glory of Christ. Another quote for you. This comes from Jonathan Edwards, a theologian in the 1700s. He says, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature 
and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart, and that in this way God might be glorified. The mission has always been Jesus, and it's always been about seeing people gathered in to delight in Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, that's God's mission. That's my mission. 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Festus, the Roman governor, says, Paul, you're, you're a brilliant dude, but obviously you've gone off the deep end. And Paul says, no, I have never been clear-headed. Paul turns to Agrippa. He says, you know the things that I'm speaking about. None of this happened in some obscure corner of the world. Agrippa, you've seen these things. You say you believe the prophets. I know that you do. I know you say you believe the prophets. They point to Jesus. Would you believe? Verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul, with a short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's mission is to make Jesus known. God recruits Paul onto God's mission. We see Paul's heart in this passage, both in how he's pressing Agrippa and in his comments in verse 29, and in his work in evangelism throughout the book of Acts. Whether short or long, you can do it now or you can do it every years. Paul says, I want to see you become like me. I want to see you a Christian, imprisonment notwithstanding. God's mission has always been Jesus. And so we could say, therefore, Paul's mission is Jesus. God's mission has always been the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, that is the mission that I've been given as well. So let me ask you, I mean, if, I, if somebody were to, were to just say, what is the purpose of the church? How would you answer that? This church or that church or any church, I mean, what is the reason that church exists? And maybe to get even more specific, why are you here this morning and not at brunch instead? Is it because we're, we're called to do good deeds? Is it we're called to, to change the world? Is it because we're called to educate and, and improve material conditions? Yes, yes, all of that is part of our calling. But at its heart, its blazing center, the reason the church exists it's the mission of God itself. It's to see Jesus worshipped. God's mission has always been Jesus. Therefore, Paul's mission is Jesus. Therefore, Ridgewood Church's mission is Jesus, right? As those who belong to Jesus, we want to go about making Jesus known. And we do it through a variety of different ways. We do it through our countercultural life together. The way that we give to one another. The way that we sacrifice for one another. The way that we show hospitality to one another. We do it through a different way of life, a kind of faithfulness that's otherworldly. We do it through our worship on Sundays where we sing about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we do it through evangelism, the verbal proclamation of the gospel to friends and family who don't yet believe. Something that we want to do over the course of the next month is really emphasize evangelism as a church family. We've done this in the past, and we're going to do it again this year. We are officially deeming October as Friends Month. Friends Month. October 2023 is Friends Month. 
Now, again, we've done this in the past, but we want to do it this year with an increased intentionality. It's going to be Friends Month. We're going to emphasize sharing the gospel with our friends over the course of October. Um, it's going to kick off uh, in uh, September 30th. We're going to kick it off with an evangelism workshop. Uh, we're going to have an evangelism workshop where we just have some of our best evangelists just teach us about evangelism. Hey, here's what it looks like to turn gospel conversations, to turn regular conversations into gospel conversations. Here's some strategies that you can have in your back pocket. We're going to do that in September to hopefully uh, sort of gear us up for the month of October. We're also going to be uh, partnering with Christ Fellowship Cherrydale and Christ Fellowship Northwest to do 21 days of prayer for the harvest uh, over the course of the majority of October, we're just going to pray daily that God would raise up laborers for the harvest, that God would, would save our friends and family. And then the last thing we're just going to invite you to do is invite friends into this space on Sunday mornings. We're going to be teaching on the true story of the whole world, and we're going to be dealing with the foundational questions of life and the Bible. And we feel like it's a really accessible on-ramp for people who might not be super familiar with the Scriptures. We're going to try and give clear gospel presentations and even make our liturgy tailored with the awareness that there's going to be unbelievers and maybe even folks who are antagonistic to the gospel in our midst. We just want to show off what we do here to our friends. It's just Jesus. We, we just worship the Lord Jesus. Something that I've read time and time again is that studies have shown that the overwhelming majority of people, one study I read recently said as many as 86% of people surveyed said that they would happily go to church with someone if they were invited. So what if we just invited our friends to church? It's like, may, maybe it feels a little bit awkward. Maybe, maybe that feels like you've, you've been about, well, it's about personal evangelism. We, we don't want to invite. It's like, just maybe we just invite friends to church and just ask them to come and see what the Lord does with that. Why not ask your friends this month and see how the Lord Jesus could work, make himself known? Now, it's interesting to me how this chapter ends, kind of an ominous tone. We're told that the king withdraws and concludes, verse 31, 32, this man is innocent, that this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Verse 32, Agrippa to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Like Jesus, the governor and the king declare Paul innocent, yet still he remains in custody. Just like Jesus was declared innocent, yet was still sent to the cross, Paul is declared innocent, yet still left in chains. Verse, Agrippa, verse 32, rather, Agrippa says this kind of, kind of tragic, honestly, uh, kind of unjust statement here. Had he not appealed to Caesar, he could be walking free. You think back to previous chapters when Paul said, I would like to go see, be seen and make my case before Caesar. And you wonder, did Paul make a grave mistake in asking to do this thing? Have we just seen time and time again in these chapters a lapse of justice, a kind of tragic uh, overlooking of, 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 of Paul by the Lord Jesus? I would invite you to consider Scooby-Doo for a moment. Do you remember how every episode of Scooby-Doo begins with the swamp ghost terrorizing old Mr. Carruthers? And then the gang kind of stumbles in. They're haunted by the swamp ghost. Then after some shenanigans, they finally corner the ghost. And then what happens always? They remove the mask, and it turns out that it was Mr. Carruthers, the farmer, the whole time. Do you remember that? What looks like tragic, unjust imprisonment as we get to the climax of Paul's hearing, what looks like a, the Lord Jesus overlooking this servant is actually a result of us just not paying close enough attention because we have a key gospel judo move where Fred unveils the mask and what looks like unjust imprisonment is actually this, the Lord Jesus bearing witness about himself to the nations. 
Preaching, reasoning, sharing the gospel along the way. And then here, in all seriousness, here is the encouraging thing for us. Here's the encouraging thing for us. If God's mission has always been Jesus, you know what that means? It can't fail. It is categorically impossible for God not to accomplish his purposes. And so, like Paul, we want to give ourselves over to the mission that belongs to God himself. That means our mission can't fail. We are on the winning side if we devote ourselves to making Jesus known because he will be made known and the nations will be gathered in and Jesus will be exalted. And so we devote ourselves to that business. It's going to work out great for us, church family. And so if you're here this morning and and you are not a believer, not a Christian, what we would say to you is just unequivocally going to be straightforward. Whether short or long, we would to God that not only you but all who are in here might this day become such as we are. We want you to believe in Jesus. Christian, in here this morning, your invitation is like Paul, like God, it is to make Jesus your mission. To give yourself over to the task of making Jesus known and join with what God has been doing from before time began. That to me is a compelling call for us as a church family. Next few moments, just gonna invite you to pray and consider how the Lord Jesus is prompting you to respond. I'd even consider you to uh, encourage you to consider those friends and family who might not yet believe, who you can invite or begin initiating gospel conversations with, and pray that the Lord Jesus would use it as we devote ourselves to making his name known. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for first loving us. And we thank you for the salvation that we have been given in your name. And we pray that we would be uh, eager to see friends and family, those who don't yet believe, place their faith in you. We pray that you give us boldness as we evangelize those folks that you've placed in our sphere who are near to us but far from you. And we pray, God, that you would use our efforts and our daily efforts, whether short or long, in seeing these folks come to know you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen our church for many more years of making you known here in this space and and wherever else you might send and fling these folks. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would fully devote ourselves to your mission for your name's sake. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.